This is episode number 44 with Daniel Negreanu. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Yo, 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 what's up, greats? Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm very excited about this episode with the one and only number one poker player in the world, Daniel Negreanu. Now, I used to watch Daniel play poker about 10 years ago when I was in college, and I can't believe I was actually in college 10 years ago now. But I used to watch him on ESPN late at night, and I thought I'd try to be cool and play in the dorms with all the fellas uh, $20 cash games and, uh, play, uh, hold them until like 4am in the off season. And I was never any good, but I thought I'd try to be good and uh, be competitive, but I was just always too, uh, I could just, <laughs> I couldn't really, I didn't have a good poker face. So it was pretty embarrassing and I never really won anything, but it was an, a fun journey and it really helped me appreciate how challenging it actually is to be a great poker player. And I was a bad poker player in, you know, a one college dorm. And let alone to be the number one poker player in the world, it's pretty incredible what Daniel's been able to create. And what's even more inspiring is that he used to be number one, then lost his mojo for a while, let's say his mojo, and then he got it back recently and won a couple bracelets and became number one in the world again. And I asked him, what was this entire transition? How come he was at the top, then he lost it all? Let's say he didn't lose it all, but he wasn't at the top anymore. And then he raised back up to the top. And it was very interesting. I got to talk to Daniel before we started recording this interview. And we both went through the same type of peak performance leadership training. And he told me that a lot of the success was due to what he learned about himself through this type of leadership, peak performance, emotional intelligence training. I thought it was very interesting to hear about how he went from not being number one to getting back up there pretty quickly and how he's maintained that ever since then. So it's very interesting. And he talks about it briefly in this episode, but uh, it's, it's pretty cool what we dive into. And we talk about really how Daniel got started in poker and his first five to six trips to Vegas that really ended in a failure and what he learned from those experiences. We also talk about the most important element to becoming a successful poker player, why experiential learning is so important, how table presence makes you a stronger poker player, how to use feedback to maximize your growth. We also talk about how to build confidence like a professional poker player in your in your business, in your career, and in real life. Talk about the mental and physical preparation for top poker players and really how you can apply using the same type of mental preparation in your own life. Talk about the special skills for connecting with others and a lot more in this episode. I'm very excited to be bringing in Daniel to share with you all of his amazing wisdom in this episode. And I'm excited about this. I'm very pumped to introduce you guys to Daniel, again, number one poker player in the, in the world. So let's go ahead and jump into it right now. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey, everyone, and thanks again for coming back on the School of Greatness. I've got a very special guest on today. His name is Daniel Negreanu, currently ranked number one in the world in poker. And uh, this is a guy that I was you know, kind of following when I thought I was going to get into poker about 10 years ago when I was a, a college uh, cocky kid, uh, late night in the, the poker tables in the dorm rooms. And uh, I would always watch on TV uh, on ESPN when they were talking about Daniel and how amazing he was as a poker player. So I'm very excited to have you on. Thanks for coming on, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be on. And uh, we were introduced through uh, a mutual friend, Chris Lee, who trained both of us in a leadership training and uh you know we were just chatting before this interview about what it's done for you and it's done some amazing things in my life and career and relationships as well so i wanted to tap into that eventually but i'm just really interested in learning about your life and your success and kind of the the patterns that you've seen throughout the years and i kind of want to just dive in to uh when you first got introduced to poker and uh, what attracted you to playing poker in the first place? Well, I started playing poker when I was a teenager. And really, before that, I was a pool player. You know, I was a snooker player in Toronto and, um, you know, got into sort of the, the gambling scene, if you will, meeting a lot of guys who do that. And all of a sudden, they started playing poker. And I noticed the same guys kept winning. And my competitive spirit was always very, very strong. And I, I started to, like, try to figure out what they were doing. And as much as I would have loved to have been a basketball player or a hockey player, I mean, I'm, I was like five nine, a buck forty. That wasn't going to happen. And I was too big to be a jockey, too small to be an athlete. So I was stuck in the middle. And poker kind of really satisfied that competitive spirit that uh, that was inside me. Amazing. So you started getting into poker, and well, you noticed a bunch of other guys were winning. So when did you realize the first moment that you actually had some skill or some natural talent, and that you were good? Well, you know, when you're young, when you're that age, when you're a teenager, you just think you know everything. <laughs> You've got it all figured out. So there were many moments where I thought I had it all figured out. And then I'd get my head kicked in and be like, wait a minute, maybe not. Like the first few times I went to Las Vegas in my early 20s, like 21-year-old kid, I'm going to take over the poker world. And then walking home with my tail between my legs and my pockets empty because, you know, these guys have seen hometown heroes come and go. Mm. And uh, – you know, I remember those being really important moments, those failures that I had the first five, six times I went to Vegas in terms of uh, me digging deeper and looking for an extra layer of determination to get through it and, and to just you know realize that, okay, if, I, if I'm going to win there, I'm going to have to just get better. And when did you, how many times did it take until you went to Vegas where you actually came back either breaking even or not completely losing, but you know, seeing like, oh, okay, I've got an opportunity here? I think I'd say about the first five, six trips I took. Uh, were non successful. And, you know, it was a big adjustment period, but probably within about eight, seven, eight months of just going there back and forth from Toronto. What I do is I'd go to Vegas, blow my load, go back to Toronto, rebuild my bankroll, go to Vegas, <laughs> blow my load, you know, rinse, repeat, right? Until I finally figured out what was, you know, wh what adjustments I needed to make to be successful. So you were like the king in Toronto then. You were just like cleaning up at all these different little poker tournaments and building a name for yourself. Then you need to go test it. In the big leagues, and you'd come home, you know, not winning a dime, and keep practicing and learning. I'm assuming you'd be reading all the books and studying and researching anything you could in the, in the meantime, right? Well, not exactly. Actually, for me, the the real lessons I got was watching people. 
So for, if I knew a guy was a successful player, you know, I'd watch him for like a week. I'd dissect what he does well. If you ever saw that show called Heroes, there was a guy named Siler who was a uh, superhero. And what he did was he sucked the, 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 he sucked the talents out of other people and then left them for dead. And I use that analogy because essentially what I would do is I'd spend a week profiling a guy, figuring out what he does well, take what I like, incorporate it in my game, and get rid of the rest. Then I'd move on to a next person next week. So for me, it wasn't a lot of books it wasn't a lot of that. It was mostly just, you know, practical, you know, mentorship that, you know, I was just doing on my own with, with people in the game. How many hours were you putting in a week in those first few years? Well, as a teenager, I wanted to show my parents that I was serious about this and that I wasn't just, you know, gambling. So I would play Monday to Friday from noon to eight. I'd put in 40-hour weeks. I did keep – I kept detailed records. I knew how well I did on Thursday afternoons versus Monday nights. And this is before software. I mean, I just – handwritten all this stuff and I'd keep a track of expenses, the whole deal. So I knew what my hourly rate was. I think when I was 18 years old, I was probably making about $44 an hour in the game I was playing. Um, but I was very meticulous in that regard in terms of record keeping. Now, would you say you understand, I mean, it sounds like you're very analytical and you really track a lot of things, but would you say you actually understand human behavior more so than the statistical side of the game? Well, I think in a lot of ways I have, you know, there's a couple skills that you that are required to be a good poker player. One is obviously, you know, being analytical, but the other more important one I think is, you know, people skills and the ability to read into human behavior, as you said. And I think that's my bigger strength, um, ability to get inside people's head, play psychological warfare, plant seeds that I plan to exploit later, um, really just kind of break people down and, and, you know, figure out their weaknesses. What's one of your favorite moves or, you know, strategy moves you've ever created in, in, a, in a game, maybe even a big pressure game that you will just always remember as one of like the greatest moves you've ever done so far, where you really set someone up and then later you just had it perfectly set up and uh, you got exactly the result you wanted. Well, I could list like a hundred of those, but <laughs> they all break down to the same idea, which is um, there's very few people who do what I do in, the, in terms of I do a lot of table talk. I do a lot of talking. And, um, you know, really confusing people into doing what I want. So a lot of times I'll say something to set somebody up for a later uh, situation, you know, where uh, I talked. Uh, there was like one example from a, the six bracelet that I just won recently against an incredible player named Phil, Phil Bork, we call him, Phil Gruesome, where um, I raised and I was talking a lot and being sloppy and he re-raised. And so later when I had a really, really strong hand, I, I was talking a lot and I sort of taunted him. And I looked at him, I was like, really? You just never leave me alone, do you? You just like can't let one go, can you? And my, I wanted him to do that. I wanted him to do that. <laughs> and so he did. And, and you know, it was actually kind of a key pot for me at that point. So I definitely use my mouth. That's definitely a tool that's consistently been something that I go to when all else fails. Mm, amazing. Now, if you couldn't use your, your words, do you think you'd be as an effective poker player? No, I don't think I'd be as effective. I still think I'd be, a, you know, obviously a winning player, one of the best, but Part of what I think is interesting about poker is that you can create a table image or, you know, it's about self-awareness. So now I understand how people view me, right, and what they think, and now I can exploit that. So if people think, for example, mm. oh, Daniel, he bluffs all the time. Okay, now that I know that, well, I'm not going to bluff them. Or conversely, if they think, oh, Daniel, he never bluffs here. Okay, well, this is the perfect guy to bluff. So self-awareness is probably the most important attribute to being, becoming a successful player. Mm. Now, how – uh, how much self-awareness did you have for the first, I guess, 15 years until you did the, the leadership training that I did as well? 
Well, to be honest, I, I feel like that's something that's always been a strength of mine, uh, you know, self-awareness, especially at the poker table. And I've always been somebody who, you know, as you mentioned, has been analytical. Um, but what I got out of doing uh, what I did was the different one than you. I was in Las Vegas doing Choice Center. And um, what I got out of it was like a new level of self-awareness and really sort of like you, you can read all you want in books, you know, and in theory, but it's completely different. On when you're not actually just exp- when you actually experience something, it sticks with you longer. So ear ex- experiential learning is like the next frontier. You can read a hundred books or have one experience over a weekend, and that experience sticks with me much stronger than any books did. Mm. Yeah, amazing. So, you, so you're always had a lot of self awareness, but you feel like you have heightened self awareness now since then. Well, definitely heightened self awareness, and also you know, uh, like yeah, and more specifically, like specifically what I got out of the, out of. Con, con, you know, completing Choice Center was I got a, I got re in touch with my confidence and not realizing there was a connection to this woman who I was an, absolutely in love with this girl and uh, she you know she quote unquote broke my heart and um, I'd gotten over it before I went but I didn't realize there were still wounds there and what I didn't realize is the effect on that situation on the rest of my career in you know in every not just my career but in my life I, it hurt my confidence at the poker table my self esteem was down. Um, now when other people started talking about, oh, Negrano, yeah, he's over the hill. He can't win anymore. I started to believe it. I started to buy into what they had to say. Uh, and not only till I, you know, really dealt through that, through some of the experiential learning that you, you've done as well, did I really realize like, oh my God, who knew that there was a connection there? And, and once I attacked it after leadership, you know, I went on an absolute tear. I won, um, you know, a three and a half million dollars in tournaments and got back to number one in the world. And when was this relationship that you had your heart broken? I'd say it ended in uh, 2011. It was on and off for about three years. But it ended, yeah, July of 2011. It's very interesting you say that. We have a, we have a lot in common more than I, than I thought so. It's because uh, right before I went to my leadership training, I was, it was about six to eight months of me kind of getting over a heartbreak as well. And it kind of had me lose my mojo in a lot of areas. I felt like I was getting it back and business was still great and everything, but I just didn't have 100% of the confidence that I had before. And that's a lot that what opened up for me as well is kind of letting go of that and uh, getting through it as opposed to holding on to this resentment or this hurt feeling that I had. And uh, since then, it's just been like everything's everything's working in unison the way I envisioned it. And it's been uh, it's been a beautiful experience. So it's, yeah. in, it's interesting you had the similar similar thing that happened. Well, yeah. And, and to touch on that, I actually you know I listened to the podcast with you and Chris Lee, and you know we talked a little bit about you know survival. And, you know, I'm sorry, being a victim and being responsible. And I remember one moment just framing the story of her differently, where I told it the, the first way I told it was just as I would, you know, where she did this to me, she did that to me and oh my God, all this. Right. And then, you know, one of the exercises we did, I was asked to sort of frame, you know, frame it a little differently and say, okay, well, what were you responsible for? And then I went, oh my God, what an idiot. When I met she she was with somebody else. She'd already told me she wasn't really to be in a relationship. She lied to me three times and I went back. She didn't do anything to me. I chose all of it, you know, and it's, it's so empowering because once I realize, you know, that nobody has really the power to make you or break you, it's all based on the choices you make. So it was really like an aha moment for me when I went, huh, she didn't do anything. And I view her differently now than I, than I did before as well. I remember the good times. You don't resent her anymore. Not even a little bit. Now I look, I think back fondly. I'm actually grateful for the relationship because she opened me up to being more spontaneous, having more fun, mm. um, doing things I wouldn't have. And I, you know, the other stuff is just not something that I focus on anymore. Wow. It's so powerful. 
I love this stuff. <laughs> um, so tell me, what have you learned in your, I guess, 20 plus years of playing poker? What is it, 23 years now of playing poker since you were 16? Is that what you said? Yeah, I started when I was about 17. So it's been 22 years. 23 years of poker. And I would say intense poker. You're doing it full time, obviously. What? Tell me a few things you've learned about people and, uh, you know, people in general, what you've really learned about human behavior and what type of people there are out there and what you can just pick up on people very easily and quickly. And it could be over poker and business, over dinner, whatever it may be. But what are there some things you've just really learned about people, maybe behaviors that we all tend to have? Can you share some light on that? Well, yeah, you know, and this definitely connects to the training in that um, I've spot, you know, throughout my career, there's certain people that I'll pick on, right? Where I bluff them, I attack them, I go after them. And those are the people that generally say things like, I'm the unluckiest player in the world. Nothing ever happens well, good for me. Like, I, they're just completely, they live like a victim. So, for example, a poker example, if a scary card comes on the river, right? I'll try to I'll try a big bluff on them because in their mind, like, of course he caught that card. That always happens to me. Nothing good ever happens to me. So right. I pick on them. When you see somebody come to your table conversely where they're confident, they have a positive attitude, um, they seem like they belong, this is a guy with a good table presence, right? And I believe that that's very important. And it's a testament also to how – like poker is a mirror for how people live their lives. And mm. you see the best and the worst of people most importantly when they're losing. You know, when you're winning, it's easy to be happy and haha, everything's great. It's when you lose for like a month or two, what happens to that person, to their psyche? Then you see the real truth in terms of like what they're dealing with and who they are. Mm. So what do you like when you're losing? Well, I, I like to pride myself on being somebody who's again very self-aware. Yeah. Um, and I would say the biggest, you know, change is is like with anything, you, you start to second guess maybe. Starting second guess, you know, and that's, you know, again, an issue of confidence. So I'll analyze myself. I'll look at the hands. I'll discuss it with friends. And I'll be like, am I playing bad or not? I'll always look for feedback from friends. And, you know, there's two different types of feedback that I can get in poker. And that's, you know, some comes from my friends who I respect. And others, if you just read the internet forums, you know, you got 15-year-old kids posting on there, Negron, who sucks, man. He can't play a leg. (laughs) Like, if I focus on that stuff, that's not very, like, empowering. But, you know, discussing with friends like Phil Ivey. And others like that, you know, that's they'll they'll tell me like, no, no, you're playing good. And um, again, I think at this point, I'm very, very self-aware in terms of knowing the difference between if I'm playing poorly or, you know, I'm just, you know, not confident. How does someone build confidence, do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, one of the ways is to do something like Choice Center or the leadership program that you did, because, um, you know, the, the, the biggest mistake I think a lot of people make is. You know, they continue to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. The definition of insanity, as Einstein yeah, said. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, building confidence, first and foremost, you want to pick, you want to start out playing in a game you're comfortable in. Like I wouldn't play against the pros in your, for your first time, you know, sit in a game where you feel like you are one of the better players. And, you know, or f- conversely, if you were playing at a certain level and you're not doing as well, go down a little bit and rebuild confidence if your confidence has been shattered. Uh, it would be similar to like a baseball pitcher, you know, where he's just not doing well in the majors. Go down to the minors for a couple weeks, mm. get your confidence back, come on back, and then uh, with, with a you know, recharged, renewed look on, on the situation. 
One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How do you look at failure? Well, I look at failure as an awesome opportunity. I really do. And as I said, I mean, in my life before I became successful, I had to have been broke at least 20 times. And each one of those 20 times was a learning experience. Yeah, sometimes I had to learn the same thing over a couple of times. <laughs> but um, the point where it really forced me to dig deep, see what was underneath, like when my back was against the wall. And I found that I have that ability when my back's against the wall to really thrive under pressure. And that's one of the things that's made me a good tournament player because the stress levels when you're at the end are at their highest, but it's when your focus needs to be at its peak. So how do you prepare for a big tournament or a big game mentally and physically? What do you do to get ready? Well, I mean, I'm a big proponent of sleep. I mean, when you play poker, sometimes we're playing 12 to 15 hour sessions. Um, you know, if, if your mind's not, if you're not rested, you're just not going to be at your peak. So eight hours of sleep. I eat really well. I'm, I'm actually a vegan. So wow. I, um, you know, I try to eat clean, not processed foods. When I'm on the road, it's a bit more of a struggle. Aside from that, you know, I'm very, I'm physically active. I work out four times a week. But in terms of actually preparation for the poker tournament, I'm, I've played so many years now. There's no specific um, training I need to do for the poker tournament outside of just making sure that my mind's at peace. I'm rested. I don't drink alcohol, no caffeine, none of that stuff before a tournament. So you, <clears throat> it sounds like you really take your body and your mind, uh, you treat it like you're a professional athlete. And it sounds like where you're getting, you know, a lot of sleep, you're, I mean, vegan, that's pretty like hardcore and, uh, and working out. What type of workouts do you do? Well, I work out with a trainer four days a week. Uh, you know, actually we do like we lift and then I, you know, I do some, you know, cardio stuff and yoga on the side when I'm not working out with her. Um, November has been no booze, no bread month for me. So I'm going <laughs> <laughs> hardcore. <laughs> this is amazing. And do you feel like the sleep, the eating, and the, the physical working out plays a big part of your success and being able to stay on point throughout these tournaments? Yeah, well, I think so. And again, this came from a learning lesson in my early 20s when, you know, I was just like everybody else. You know, the night before a tournament, we'd go out, we'd have dinner, we'd have wine, and we'd have drinks later. It would be 4 o'clock in the morning. And you're still not asleep. And now you're like hung over for the first day. Um, and I did that for, you know, a good solid year or two. And then I thought, what, you know, what am I doing here? Is this a job or not? You know, mm. and one of the dangers, one of the, one of the great things and one of the dangers about being a poker player is you are your own boss. So you're not accountable to anybody but yourself. So if you're not looking after, you know, your best interests financially, mentally, spiritually, whatever, then who is? So I took it upon myself to say, okay, well, I'm going to set some rules here. No alcohol the night before a tournament, period. And that was like one of the biggest ones, you know. Mm. It's important, yeah. And then you also playing golf on the side, just like different recreation activities. Oh, totally. Golf is – I think golf is like a perfect, uh, me, you know, perfect actually addition to a poker player's lifestyle, which 
Poker players are often out late inside a casino. Golf, you're outside, you're in the sun, you're still competing, and you're still stimulating your mind. And you know, gambling, uh, gambling happens there too. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I love golf. Yeah, gambling at golf is probably my most fun form of gambling. Do you usually win? I started out doing very poorly. <laughs> uh, there were millions of dollars that went from my hands to other people's, and then I got um, a personal caddy slash coach. Uh, named Christian, who, uh, you know, he helped me turn things around. So I got it all back, plus uh, a little bit of gravy. What would you say is your your second favorite sport to play? Besides, I guess, besides poker and golf, what do you play next? You like, are you a big chess guy? No, you think that's a sport too? Well, um, I mean, I know. a game, whatever you want to call it. Well, I'm Canadian. So, you know, I played street hockey growing up. I also sure. played soccer, played basketball. I played it all, but uh, yeah, actually here in Vegas, um, often on Thursday nights, we play indoor soccer with a group of really? uh, players. Yeah. Wow, this is awesome. I love it. Who would have known There's this whole underground community of uh, sports playing with all the poker guys? That's awesome. So what's your big dream? What's your big vision? You've, you've done it all, it sounds like. You've been number one in the world twice. You've won millions. You're, you know, six bracelets. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bracelets. Like, what's the dream? What's the vision next? You're 30... In your late thirties, you've got thirty nine. You got yeah, tons of time and tons of life left, uh, hopefully. And uh, what's the vision? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, well, the first, the first one that's on my mind right now is when I'm forty. I have this cutout because I believe in visualization. Yes, uh, I have this cutout. It's of David Beckham. You know, ripped to shreds, and so that I've got that. I'm gonna do a side by side when I'm forty because I'd like to be in the best shape of my life when I'm forty. So I'm well on my way there. But more importantly. When I before I went to Choice Center, I, um, you know, I had people. I have people work for me. You know, I have assistants. I have my golf guy. I have my manager. And then I realized that for ten years, I isolated myself from the rest of the world in a lot of ways. And I didn't have, um, you know, that network. I pushed people away, a lot, uh, you know, on a regular basis. And you know, people always. I felt like they wanted something from me, whether it was money or whether it was association. So I really got disconnected and. Um, one of the things I realized is that I was missing love in my life and not just, you know, talking about romantic love, although that is the vision right now. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, I'm definitely looking to start a family of my own, you know, um, find the right woman and uh, have a couple little Negranus running around. Nice. Now, when you mean you're missing out on love besides the, the romantic side of things, you mean just connecting with people in the world in general? Well, yeah, because I'd shut myself off. I, you know, I guess for a period when poker was getting more popular, I chose to, you know, I just found that I was all the relationships I had were like five minutes, like, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you, da da da. But there was nothing, there was no depth there. And then, uh, mm. you know, I ended up, uh, you know, one of my closest friends now is the person I did leadership with, Laura, and uh, she, I actually just traveled with her for a month in Europe, and you know, I got to know her and the people in my group at a much deeper level. And the best part of it was Laura. The first six weeks I knew her, she didn't know my name and she didn't know who I was at all. Don't so I love that. Yeah, it was really great because it's it's like I felt like I got to learn. I got to meet people um, from the inside out and get to know them from the inside out. Yeah. You know, where after a while I'm like, do you even like scary movies? What kind of food do you like? <laughs> Ask all those questions after I already know, like, <laughs> you know, part of her. So yeah. It's just- interesting way to get to know people <laughs> that's true i mean i spent three months with people i still don't know what they do for a living but i got to know who they were as an individual and just like the loving beautiful magnetic being that they were 
And I never had to talk about the other stuff, the surface stuff of like, where do you live and where do you work? And, you know, those things, they just don't seem as important anymore. Well, yeah, I know. Again, it's, it's, a, it's actually opened my eyes too to just in terms of like in meeting people, um, understanding that, you know, that, that stuff is obviously when you meet somebody in a social setting, you're going to stay on the surface, but you really don't know somebody until you really know them from the inside, you know, and what really makes them tick and their story and when they're vulnerable and you're vulnerable with them. Uh, that's when connection is created. Otherwise, it's you know not, it's not possible to, for that to be present unless one both of you are vulnerable with each other. Let's talk about vulnerability. Do you feel like you've ever really been vulnerable until uh, you went through this experience? Yeah, no, I'd say that you know, I've been an open book for most of my life. But seeing the power and understanding the power of vulnerability, and also how we all as humans not only just crave it, but we need it. It's what makes us happy. It, it's what connects us to each other and. Realizing that it's okay, you know, I don't have to be strong and tough and and right all the time. I can be um, open and I can be sad and I can, you know, talk about things that you know I'd like that I don't have in my life or that I'd want things like that. And and for for it to be okay and not to be feared, not to fear being judged. Because the truth is, when people are vulnerable, I mean, people don't usually get angry with them or judge them. They have empathy and they feel more connected because they think, oh my god. I've felt that same thing in my life a few times. So not until you share and be vulnerable can you really connect with people, I think. So what are some things that you've learned on the poker table that allow you to connect with people on an intimate, vulnerable, connected level? What are some things that you can share with the audience of how they can connect with a random stranger or someone in the business um, workspace or at the office what are some things people can do to just really connect so that person trusts you on the other end? Even though I know you're not really connecting to build trust on the poker table, but what are some things you've learned about that? Well, I mean, in poker, obviously at the table, I'm one of the few guys who does, I actually, like I said, I do a lot of talking and table talk. And uh, really, it comes down to getting to know people. And the first, you know, the first step is just actually asking them questions about their life. And, you know, very few people hate the idea of talking about themselves. Most people are comfortable with that. So, um, you know, you want to like the idea of being a good friend is really somebody who's being a good listener, not somebody who's, you know, telling you all about themselves. So really just, um, showing an interest and actually caring about what people say and making eye contact and, um, you know, asking follow-ups, ask about family, ask about people's goals and dreams. And you find that they, they just, people are want to open up. They, they want to talk. So, um, you know, that's something I definitely learned as a byproduct of it originally being a strategy. Because I wanted to know more about these people so I could exploit <laughs> the weaknesses, right? So, right. oh, you're a lawyer? Okay, I know not to trust you. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. That's funny. So first is being a good listener and really caring and following up with the people. Uh, what are some other things you've learned about really building a deep connection? Well, I mean, you know, that it takes two, two to tango in that regard. Like, it, it's not as simple as, okay, so you're asking questions to this person, you know, you're getting to know them, and then you're just going to be like a wall. You know, you have to you have to be willing to go that extra mile too, and share with them, and and let them know that you know you're willing to be vulnerable with them. So, if you hear something that they say that relates to you, you you can respond with like, you know, I went through the same thing as you did earlier when we talked about the girl. Right. You know, I, I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of us out there like to experience right. that. Um, what's your biggest fear, Daniel? It seems like you're always so happy, and you know, got it all together, and you're always in the top and making tons of money. And what really what really kind of scares you? Hmm. I'm not afraid of much, but I would say that my biggest fear is 
not giving and doing as much as I should or could to make a difference with the people around me and my community and like all these ideas that I have in my head to help change the world, uh, you know, fighting uh, complacency or, you know, getting too like inwardly focused and getting wrapped up in my own life where I cease to, you know, have my eye on the bigger picture. So my biggest fear, I guess, would be like not living up to my full responsibility in terms of, you know, the high lofty, you know, goals I, I set. And what are some of those goals besides, you know, the family and the, the love, the connection? What are some of those other goals? Well, much like you, you know, obviously you've done the training as well. For me, it was so impactful for me that I'd sent, you know, my people to work for me, my family, my friends. And mm-hmm. um, it's one of those things I just feel I, – I really – I believe the world would be a better place if everybody went through training, you know, like this or similar or something, you know. So, you know, inspiring people to want to make a difference and inspiring people to realize that, like, it doesn't have to be this way. You have a choice. Like, you always have one, you know. I mean, there's always something you can do differently than you are now. And I get – listen, I get that people have brutal circumstances and – um you know, I always use an analogy where, you know, you take two mothers, right, that both lost uh, a son to a drunk driver, right? And that's not their fault, and they have every right to be in pain about that. But how they react to that, you know, one mother becomes just despondent, is not there for the rest of her family, and just detached. The other mother starts Mothers Against Drunk Driving and makes a difference in the world, you know? So I'm a big believer in, you know, yeah, and stuff like those things are not your fault, but how you respond to them in the future, like a year down the road, that's on you. That's that's yeah. your responsibility. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And again, I get circumstances, but I, I there's so many people that you know choose differently, and I, I just want more people to be open to that. Yeah, and so many people hold on to those circumstances and those conversations and stories and allow it to control them for the rest of their lives, so they never actually take action or go after their dreams or their goals. They just allow the story to control them. And like you said, you know, there's tons of people who have had horrible stories and circumstances that they've overcome. Uh, and they choose to think differently. They choose to live differently. And, uh, I think it's amazing that it's part of your vision that you want everyone to experience that because it's, it sucks watching people, especially that you care about who are always holding themselves back based on stories and circumstances and, and past experiences as opposed to breaking through it and moving forward and being responsible. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, it's definitely, it's addicting. Being a victim is addicting and it's just an easy way out. It's a cop out to, you know, to blame every, everything else, every, all your situation, your story, whatever else may be. But like, it's just a much easier way to live, but it's not empowering and it's not fulfilling. And I, I, it's just such a beautiful thing when that light bulb turns in somebody's head and they go, you know what? I get it. Like myself, you know, in the whole story with, with the girl that I was in love with and, Woe is me. Look what you did to me. Buddy, you chose all that. You could have left when the red flags were like waving in your face like 100 miles an hour. Red flag, red flag. So yeah. now I look at it and I laugh at myself and I would never put myself in that sh- in those shoes again. Mm, I feel the same way. I mean in the first three months I saw so many red flags and I was like, but I'm still going to go after it and I'm still in love and this and that. And, and then I just put myself through misery. But it's all good, and it was a great experience. So I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, what I want to know is, what has given you the drive for the last 23 years? What was it growing up? Was there an experience? Was there a constant conversation? Was it your parents? Was there 
someone bullied you and said you're never going to do something in the world, what gave you the drive and the determination to be so dedicated for the last 23 years of wanting to be the best in the world in poker? Well, you know, here on here, I can only speculate. And, you know, obviously one thing I believe is that I've always just sort of had determination and ability to like, you know, I, I thought I was born with a decent head on my shoulders, if you will. Having said that, you know, I could point to the fact that I was the shortest kid in my school until um, the seventh grade. My brother's like, you know, 6'3", 220, big, big guy. My dad was like a big manly guy who was an electrician and I was like the youngest and my mom babied me and I was very spoiled. Like my mom was the best. She would make me, you know, she would always make sure that I had lunch. And at, when I was a kid, I resented it, but I, I, re- I learned later to appreciate it. So I guess I, always the feeling that maybe I was smaller than other people, you know, that Napoleon complex, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that I'd have to, you know, I, I, I didn't like, I, I don't know where it came from, but I never liked, I never responded well to anybody being condescending to me. And that's still true. Mm. Mm. You're the youngest of two. Yeah, my mother had eleven kids, but nine miscarriages. So, oh my gosh! Yeah, so when she had me, I mean, she smothered me with love, like oh. she's so happy to just have me, oh and I get that. You know, I remember being thirty-one years old, and uh, she made me a soup, and I was putting the, the spoon to my mouth, and she started blowing on it, and I was like, "Mommy, listen, I'm thirty-one years old. You got to <laughs> stop. You can't do that no more." But she's like, "I don't, I don't, I can't help it. You're always going to be my baby." Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm the youngest as well. But I was, I'm the biggest of the family, so I'm like the big jock, and uh, you know, I, I, luckily I got those genes, I guess. But um, I still feel like the runt sometimes, and that was kind of my motivation to like be the best and at everything that I did. So let's talk about go back into failure. I want to know about when you're just having a bad day, and uh, you're at the poker table, and just nothing's falling for you, and you can't table talk your way through anything. You're not getting the cards you need, and you're just losing over and over, and you feel pathetic. What do you tell yourself and uh, how do you feel in those situations? I guess first, how do you feel when that's happening? Because I'm sure it's happened many times over 23 years. And then what do you tell yourself to just you know snap out of it and continue forward as opposed to having it control you in a negative way? Well, you know, that's actually for one, I, I definitely don't ever feel pathetic. That's for sure. Right. Um, you know, now that I've been doing it so long, um, I've learned to focus on what's in my control. So I beat myself up when it's me that made the mistake, but you know, if it was bad luck, like I had a pair of aces and the guy had a pair of tens and he caught a 10, that's, you know, that, that wasn't in my control. So I don't, you know, that's no big deal. I'm able to shift and go, okay, you know what? You're still doing the right thing. If I make my, if I make a mistake where I played a hand and I, I should have known better, those are a little more difficult to deal with. So what I do is actually what I do now. Um, and again, I learned this at through choice center training was, uh, I stop. Okay. And I look at what I have. I look at the situation and go, okay, you know what? Definitely screwed up here. And why did I screw up? Because I wasn't as focused and I'm committed now to making sure that I'm focused from here on out. We're going to put that behind me. And then I just shift my mind because if you don't, if you let that linger, you're not going to be present to what you're doing in the moment, which is the most important thing at a poker table. You got to be present. So if I'm, if 15 minutes later, I'm still thinking about the mistake I made on that hand. Well, I've just, I've beat myself even worse. And you're going to make mistakes. It's how you respond to them. Again, you know, difference between responsible and victim. It's how you respond to those mistakes or bad beats that you take in a, in a poker tournament. Mm. I love it. I appreciate you sharing all this. And I, I really want to, the listeners to be able to take this information and apply it to whatever they're doing in their business or life. 
So these are all principles that you can apply in every other situation in life. And uh, I appreciate you being open about this. Um, what about getting in the zone? Because you're sitting there at the table for hours and hours. How do you stay in the zone? Or is it kind of going in and out when you know you need to get in the zone and then take a break? Because I feel like that'd be really challenging to be in the zone for, you know, 10 hours. Well, definitely. That's one thing I've learned over the years. Uh, these poker tournaments that we play often take six days and you're playing about 12 hours each day. So you're looking, you know, you know, 70 hours of being at the table, something like that. So what I realized is, okay, you know, I'm not going to be able to maintain hyper focus that entire time. Right. So I choose the first couple days to just kind of like take it easy, soak it in, you know, get to know the people at my table. Um, and then when we get down to about 25, 30 players, I'm able to just elevate to this new level of focus where I just sense things. I feel things. If somebody licks their lip, you know, 20 meters to my left, I notice it and I know what it means. Um, if somebody swallows, I can see it. It's just because I conserve my energy for the points where I feel like it's most uh, necessary to be focused and really about pacing yourself, I think, because it's just, we're just, we are human and to, to focus at that level um, for an entire tournament, I don't think is realistic. And your funeral, what do you want people to say about you? Hmm. Well, I don't want to ever die, but I guess I'm going to. So let's go with, um, well, what I'd like, I guess what I'd want to say is, I wanted to say is that, that I was outspoken and stood for what I believed was right, even if it meant standing alone, that I always looked to be inspirational and use the platform I was given to make a difference for other people. Love it. And what is your definition of greatness? My definition of greatness. I liked, I actually retweeted Chris's. <laughs> so it's become my new go-to. Um, de- <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, in a nutshell, along the same lines as Chris is, you know, is greatness is achieving a life that you've had in your mind and a vision you've seen for yourself and actually just living it. Mm. So powerful. I love it. Where can we where can we connect with you or follow you online? What's the best place? Well, the best way place is uh, I'm at Real Kid Poker on Twitter. Real Kid Poker on Twitter. And was there a main website that you want to direct anyone to to check out your stuff? Well, my my homepage that I have is just a personal page. It's fullcontactpoker.com. And uh, yeah, so I'm there every once in a while. But Twitter is basically the best way. Daniel, I appreciate it. And uh, I love our conversation. And thank you so much for, for sharing openly. It was a pleasure, my man. And I, I love what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And I was really hoping that, you know, I'd have the opportunity to be on your show because I, I listened to the last podcast and I think you're making a difference with this kind of stuff. So, well, thank you. Maybe, we can, maybe we can do some uh, powerful leadership stuff in the future someday. Sounds like a plan. I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. You got it, buddy. And there you have it, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. And big thank you to Daniel for just opening up and sharing his wisdom and his insights and his years and years of lessons and examples that we can all apply in our business and our life and our relationships. And what a what an honor, what a privilege it was for me to, to connect with Daniel and 
I'm just so excited to be able to share this type of information with you. Again, this is the type of information that I was always looking for when I was 10, 15, 20 years old, just trying to figure out life in general, trying to figure out what it was going to take for me to get to the next level in in sports, what it was going to take for me to get a scholarship in college, what it was going to take to make it to the professional football league and what it was going to take to make my first million. All, you know, I was always looking for this type of information to learn from successful people on all walks of life. And I'm just so blessed and privileged to be able to share this with you. And I hope that each week that this kind of just brings you some additional inspiration and some insights for you to apply to your own business, your own sports, your life, your art, your relationships, whatever it is you're trying to create something magical in your life, I hope this gives you that spark of inspiration. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, please, I would love it if you shared it over on Facebook with your friends or over on Twitter. And make sure to tag Daniel as well. We've got it all over on the show notes with his Twitter and Facebook page. Uh, So head on over to to lewishowes.com and you'll see Daniel's information over there. And all the show notes about this episode will probably be some videos and images of Daniel up there as well. And that's over at lewishowes.com and schoolofgreatness.com. And also wherever you're uh, listening to this in the world, Go ahead and tag yourself, post a picture and tag uh, at Lewis House and uh, Daniel's Instagram as well over on Instagram. We'd love to just kind of see where you guys are in the world, where you're listening, where you're being inspired at with uh, this interview with Daniel. And uh, it'd be kind of cool to just check it out. So with that, guys, you know what time it is. It's time to go out there, play big today and do something great. <laughs>